0: Hello, everyone. It is your host, Grayson Decker. This is the Not So Grateful Dead podcast, and this is episode number four. Today's case is pretty brutal, but I am happy that you're here today to hear another case on this fine Wednesday. I do have an announcement before we get into the case, however, and that is that I will be seeing you more than once a week now. I have decided that I would like to do two episodes a week. I'm going to be doing them on Wednesdays and Sundays, so stay tuned for that because it's going to be super exciting and super fun. But before we actually start the case, I did want to kind of give another trigger warning this week because these cases are very brutal, very upsetting. There is mention of like sexual assault in multiple different forms mutilation just not good things so once again if it's too much for you i'll see you next time but i appreciate you being here i just wanted to let everybody know because it is very hard to listen to i guess it was really hard to research just very upsetting but yeah we're gonna get into it so today we will actually be covering a serial killer and this killer is known as Randy Steven Craft. He was also known as the scorecard killer. And before we get into what he did to his victims, how he treated people in general, I'm going to give a little bit of background information about him and his early life. Because it's actually quite surprising that he turned out to be such a piece of shit human, in my opinion. So, Randy Stephen Craft was born on March 19th, 1945 in Long Beach, California. He was the fourth child born to Opal Lee and Harold Herbert Craft, and he was also their only son, and so that means that he had three older sisters. Opal Lee was a sewing machine operator, and Harold Herbert was a production worker, and by all accounts, his mom was actually a very hard worker. She would always have multiple jobs to support their family, and even still, she made sure to make time for them and just really spend a whole lot of time with her kids. Um, But however, Harold Herbert really was never around, and he actually seldom attended any social gatherings that his family would go to, so he was just never really around for his children's lives. And throughout his childhood, Randy actually was very loved and adored by his older sisters and his mother. And I don't really know if it's pertinent to the story, but he was actually known as an accident-prone kid, which maybe had something to do with the way he turned out, like just an early sign, because as we know, like the serial killer triad is wetting the bed, being brutal to animals, and arson. But It doesn't actually say anything about arson or being rude to animals, so I don't really know. In 1948, the Kraft family moves from Long Beach, California to Midway City, California. Their home here was actually nowhere near being large enough for a family of six, and it was actually a Women's Army Corps dormitory that sat on Beach Boulevard. So as one could imagine, that would be a pretty tight space for six people. His dad, Harold, actually renovated this home into a three-bedroom home, but still, even at that point, six people, three bedrooms, just very tight quarters. While living here, though, the Kraft family joined the Westminster First Presbyterian Church, and it was actually here that Opal, who is... Randy's mother she became the chairman of the deacons committee so as you can tell they were very involved in the church just very involved in their community seemed like a pretty well-rounded family Randy during this time attended the Midway City Elementary School and it was here that his classmates and teachers quickly noticed that he was very intelligent and seemed to have a lot going for him. Also, while attending this school, his mother, Opal, was an active member of the PTA. Uh, So like I said previously, she definitely put in a lot of effort to be a part of her children's lives, was actively there for them. Even though she worked really, really hard outside of just being a mom, she put in a lot of time to be a mom. And in 1957, Randy was deemed intelligent enough to begin taking accelerated classes when he began attending the 17th Street Junior High School. And he actually thrived in all of these upper-level classes. And then when Randy was a young adult, he became extremely interested in politics, and he actually even wanted to eventually become a Republican U.S. Senator, which is probably a good thing that he did not become somebody with political power because he is terrifying as a person, but I digress. In 1959, Randy began attending Westminster High School and here he would thrive academically like he had in his previous years of going to school. He would regularly achieve A letter grades and actually him and his two friends founded the Westminster World Affairs Club, which is kind of cool, I guess, whatever, he started a whole club at his high school. And during this time at Westminster High School, he was known to date a few women, but it like later came out that his classroom or his classmates and his teachers kind of always had this idea that he was in fact homosexual and not a heterosexual male. And on June 13th, 1963, Randy Kraft graduated high school and he actually graduated 10th in his class of 390 students. Um, I didn't even do that good in high school. I was maybe number 89 out of 363. I was in the top 25% of my class but definitely nowhere near number 10 in my class which is just insane. So like obviously he is very smart which kind of plays into his role as a serial killer. He then attended the Claremont Men's College in the fall of 1963. And at this college, Randy pursued a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. Um, And after he enrolled, he actually enrolled in the Reserve Officers Training Corps as well. And also during this time, he would regularly attend demonstrations to support the Vietnam War. And he also campaigned, worked in rallies, and he did all of this for the Republican presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, who was the candidate at the time. He also states later on in life that these views, campaigns, rallies, all of these like political actions that he was going through and demonstrating in was just a complete shadow of his parents' political beliefs and actions. And he actually described his second year, At Claremont Men's College as a year, he abandoned the last gap of his conservative ideology. This was also the same year that Randy started to branch out with his sexual orientation and he began his first homosexual relationship. And in 1964, Randy Kraft began working as a bartender at a local Garden Grove cocktail lounge. And this was mainly aimed towards gay clientele So, during this time, he was also known to frequent Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach to have casual sex with hustlers. Still during this time, his family had actually no idea about his true sexual orientation. He kind of kept it a secret from them and was just sort of secretly exploring it himself. In 1966, Randy Kraft was arrested and charged with lewd conduct, and lewd conduct is basically any sexual behavior or any sort of conduct that is considered crude and offensive, or contrary to local, moral, or other standards of appropriate behavior. He was arrested because he was propositioning an undercover police officer in Huntington Beach, California, but no charges were ever officially charged because Randy had no previous criminal record at all. And in 1967, Randy Kraft experienced a very drastic shift in his political views. So he became a supporter of liberal views, and he even actually eventually registered himself as a Democrat, And after this, he became a organizer for the Democratic Party. So he's kind of starting to figure out who he is as a person, figuring out his sexual orientation, figuring out his political beliefs separate from his family's, which I feel like we all kind of do that in college, just figure ourselves out. But his senior year of college at Claremont Men's College, he really just started to not be the best student. He kind of gave up on school as a whole. He was drinking all the time, doing drugs, and he also apparently attended all-night gambling and poker sessions with other students at this college. And in June of 1967, Randy actually failed to graduate from Claremont Men's College, and because of this, he had to retake his econometrics course, and this set him back basically like a whole year. Uh, But he finally graduated in February of 1968 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. After he graduated from the Claremont Men's College, he soon joined the U.S. Air Force. During his time in the Air Force, he actually gained the ranking of airman first class, and he was a supervisor-manager kind of person when it came to the Air Force, which, once again, very successful, seems to be thriving in life, very intelligent. Obviously, he got there for a reason. And he also finally disclosed at this point to his family what his sexual orientation was. Randy describes his father as being flown into a rage and his mom. She's a little bit more understanding, but she still kind of was disappointed in him. And so at this time, he still did remain in contact with all of them, but his sister stated that He kind of almost just started to distance himself from them all and it was because he was completely honest about his sexual orientation and I think it probably had a lot to do with his dad being pissed off at him. I think not having your dad being there for you for the majority of your life and then telling him who you actually are and getting shit for it just would be very hard to deal with so I feel like I could understand why he kind of started to distance himself from his family. So then on July 26, 1969, Randy Kraft receives a general discharge from the Air Force. And this is apparently because he had told his supervisors about his sexual orientation and they just discharged him from the Air Force as a whole, which is super shitty. But I also think it has to do with the time of this occurring. It still wasn't very well accepted at that point in our country and so the Air Force said it was a medical issue and that's why he was discharged from the Air Force but obviously as we know that is not why and so Randy did actually try to seek legal advice for this issue but the Air Force basically just refused to deal with it and so he just ended up moving back home into his mom, Opal, and his father, Harold's home, and at this point in his life, he began to be a bartender again. After he moves back in with his parents, this is when his first sexual assault is known to have occurred and also just brutal attack of another individual. This is where it starts. So. March of 1970, Randy Kraft was actually 25 years old at this point, so keep that in mind, and he came across this 13-year-old boy whose name was Joseph Gerald Fancher, and they actually met in Huntington Beach, California, and Joseph Fancher basically told Randy Kraft that he had run away from home. Keep in mind he's 13, which just makes this whole thing just so upsetting, in my opinion, because... Randy Kraft is 25 at this time. It's just gross. So he tells Kraft that he had ran away from home. And Randy basically gave him this deal that he could just come and stay at his apartment for free. And that Randy also, on top of that, just knew this female that Joseph could have sex with. Which, to me, that's kind of a very strange offer. Like, here, come stay at my apartment for free and i'll let you just have sex with some random female that i know but joseph agreed to this offer so they headed to the apartment that was located in belmont shore which is just a neighborhood of long beach california and this is where things would begin to get really bad for joseph and where the wrath of randy just kind of really just began and it just kind of snowballs from there Now I'm going to talk about what actually occurred in the brutal attack against Joseph Fancher, and I wanted to give a trigger warning because I do mention sexual assault, and I know that that can be super triggering for some people, so I just wanted to give a little heads up that I am about to cover something pretty brutal. So, Randy Kraft drugged, beat, and sexually assaulted Joseph Fancher repeatedly, And eventually, Joseph was able to escape Randy's apartment, and this is because Randy had left him there while he went to work, which seems kind of stupid in my opinion, but I digress. When Joseph escaped, he was basically just wandering around the streets trying to figure out how to get home, and he was found by a concerned citizen because, as you can imagine, he was drugged, he was beat up. He had been through a lot, so he probably looked a little disheveled and also just being drugged. I'm sure they could tell. So they picked him up, they took him to the hospital, and when he got to the hospital, he actually had to have his stomach pumped because there were so many drugs in his system. And when he was talked to by the police, he explained that Randy Kraft had given him drugs and then beat him up, but he actually mentioned nothing of the repeated sexual assaults that had occurred, and police... Did eventually search Randy Kraft's apartment because his roommate actually let them come in and search. But it was without a warrant. And because Joseph had willingly taken these drugs that were offered to him, no charges were ever filed. And this is just crazy to me because it is just the tip of the iceberg with him. And they had him in the palm of their hands and he got away because they searched his apartment without a warrant. And they couldn't find incriminating evidence and use it against him because it was obtained without a warrant. So it's just super upsetting because he continued on to do just such heinous things. And they had him right there. It's just insane. Also, it is pouring down rain. I'm so sorry if you can hear that. In 1971, Kraft began studying at Long Beach State University, and he actually majored in education. And this is also where he met Jeff Graves and began a relationship with him. Randy Kraft, like we already talked about, was also known as the scorecard killer, but he also had a couple of other things that he was known by, and that is the freeway killer and the Southern California Strangler. He is believed to have killed anywhere from 16 to 67 victims, and his murders occurred between the years of 1971 and 1983. All of his victims kind of had the same profile. They were all males. They were all Caucasian, and their age range was the only thing that kind of differed between them. They were between the ages of 13 and 35, but the majority of them were kind of in their late teens to mid-20s. Which, that is just really upsetting to me because they obviously still had so much more life to live, but it was tragically stolen from them because of this fucking piece of shit, Randy Kraft. It also was later discovered that many of his victims were actually Marines, and I kind of think that this has something to do with the fact that he was treated very poorly by the US Air Force because of his sexual orientation, Um, and the majority of his victims who were found had both high levels of tranquilizers and alcohol in their systems and his mo or his modus operandi which is basically just a method of operation was to lure these victims into his vehicle and he would do this by offering them a ride or even some alcohol after pumping them full of drugs and alcohol He would then bind, torture, and sexually assault his victims. He would kill his victims usually through strangulation or asphyxiation, which is cutting off the supply to oxygen in one way or another. And he would also bludgeon some of his victims to death. Some victims also suffered from lethal doses of drugs. And one victim was even stabbed. So it was kind of all over the place, but mainly had an M.O. of drugging them, giving them alcohol, and then just torturing them and being a horrible person. Randy Kraft would dispose of the bodies by putting them alongside multiple Southern California freeways, hence the name Freeway Killer. While investigators searched his home, they actually found photographic evidence that some of his victims had even been driven back to his house before they ended up being killed. And some other things that he would make his victims endure included burns from a car cigarette lighter, and this would be around their genitalia, chest, and face. A lot of them also suffered from blunt force trauma, and this was usually towards their face or head. And on multiple occasions, trigger warning, his victims would be found with foreign objects inside of their rectums, and some other victims were emasculated, mutilated, or even dismembered. All of his crimes, in my opinion, seem very personal with the way he is treating the victim, like hitting them in the face, using the cigarette lighter around their genitalia, chest, and face, like just mutilating them in almost like the most personal areas possible. It just seems very passionate and very aggressive towards men in general. And I don't know if that stems from his dad really not being there in his life ever, or if it's because his sexuality wasn't accepted. I'm really not sure, but he definitely seems to have a hatred towards men. He was a pretty stable killer, not in the sense that he was stable mentally, but meaning that he would stay in one location and didn't go out of his way to kill or dispose the bodies. He mainly stayed in California. He had a few crimes in other places, but his main location was California. And this would be different from a transient killer, which is someone who doesn't really stay in the same place at all, moves around a lot, and doesn't have a set spot for disposal. Disposal of the body usually is just a site that they find out of convenience but like i said previously he did have a few victims in oregon but he also had two victims in michigan and those occurred in 1982 so pretty late in his killing game i'm going to begin talking about some of his victims i will preface this by saying i don't talk about all of his victims because Like I said previously, he had anywhere from 16 to 67, so that's just a lot of people to cover, but I did cover quite a few of them. And then towards the end, I just start naming them off and when and where they occurred. So we're going to begin on October 5th, 1971. Police find a nude male body, and they later find out that this is the body of 30-year-old Wayne Joseph Duquette. He was a resident of Long Beach, California, uh wayne duquette was a bartender at a gay bar called the stable he was last seen alive on september 20th 1971. so his body was found october last seen september so putrefaction which is basically just the decomposition or rotting that occurs in an individual after death had already taken place in wayne duquette's body so the coroner could not necessarily determine If foul play had occurred in his case, and his cause of death was just listed as acute alcohol poisoning, which, as I stated previously, we know is because of Randy Kraft's MO, basically drugging them, giving them a lot of alcohol, just a very lethal amount. He was recovered along the Ortega Highway in California, so freeway killer alongside a highway. In late December of nineteen seventy-two, Randy Kraft killed another victim, and this victim's name is Edward Daniel Moore. He was a twenty-year-old Marine and he was last seen leaving the barracks at Camp Pendleton, and this is the main Marine Corps base on the west coast of the United States. He was last seen on December twenty-fourth, nineteen seventy-two. And his body was recovered early December 26, 1972. He had been found alongside the 405 freeway in Seal Beach, California. And his autopsy revealed a very terrifying story. He had abrasions on his body that seemed to be from when he was pushed out of a moving vehicle. He had marks on his wrists and ankles that showed that he was most likely bound. He was then beaten with a blunt object on his face. And the autopsy showed evidence of him being garroted, which is basically just strangulation, but with a much harsher object like a metal chain or something along those lines. He also had evidence of multiple bite marks all over his body. In trigger warning, he had a sock forcibly inserted into his rectum when he was found. Six weeks later, on February 6, 1973... The body of an unidentified male was found alongside the Terminal Island Freeway. This body and man was estimated to be between the ages of 17 years old and 25 years old, and the victim's autopsy showed that his cause of death was strangulation, and he too had a sock forcibly inserted into his rectum. Two months later, on April 14, 1973, The body of Kevin Clark Bailey was found alongside the road in Huntington Beach, California. He was just 17 years old at the time. Kevin Bailey's autopsy showed that he had been sodomized and emasculated before his murder took place, which is just absolutely heart-wrenching. He was just such a young person and... It was such a terrible thing to happen to him. April 22nd, 1973, an unidentified young male victim had been found dismembered and disposed of. And then on July 30th, 1973, the body of Ronnie Jean Wibby was found beside an on-ramp that went to the 405 freeway. Ronnie Whibby's autopsy revealed that he had been strangled to death and he also had marks on his wrists and ankles and this actually told the coroner that he was suspended from some sort of device of sorts before he was sadly murdered. He had only been missing for two days when his body was recovered, which is just so sad. On December 29, 1973, the body of Vincent Cruz Mesta was found in the San Bernardino Mountains. Vincent Mesta was a 23-year-old art student, and the same thing was found in his case as many other of the victims. He had a sock forcibly inserted into his rectum, and both of his hands had also been severed, um, and they were never recovered, which is just so upsetting. In November of 1974, five more victims would be found alongside major roadways and freeways in Southern California. Three of these victims are indefinitely tied to the same killer, which we know is Randy Kraft, and this is because of where they were located when they were found and what happened to them to cause their death. 19-year-old James Dale Rives and 20-year-old Malcolm Eugene Little had both been found with foreign objects that were forcibly inter- inserted into their bodies, and the third victim that is tied to Randy Kraft in this span of killings in november is 18 year old roger edward dickerson he was a marine and he had bite marks all over his body which we know matches the same as randy's earlier victims on january 3rd 1975 randy craft abducted and murdered a 17 year old high school student his name was john lares and he was last seen getting onto a bus in long beach california John Lares' autopsy showed that he was strangled to death, and after his death, he was drugged along the shore of Sunset Beach and placed into the water. He was also found with a foreign object that was forcibly inserted into his rectum, which is just, it's very degrading, in my opinion, to leave your victim like that and to just dump them on the side of the road. Like I said, it just does not seem like he has any respect for... Any men and it's just very upsetting. Two weeks later on January 17th, 1974, the body of Craig Jonatis was found disposed of in a parking lot that belonged to the Golden, Golden Sales Hotel. This was right near the Pacific Coast Highway and his autopsy showed that he was strangled to death with a string and they believed that this was possibly a shoelace. And by this point, there had been a total of 14 victims recovered that had all been similar when it came to their physical characteristics. And like I stated previously, they were all Caucasian males. January 24th, 1975. Investigators from multiple different jurisdictions came together in Orange County to talk about their progression because all of these happen in different counties. They all had different cases, so they were talking about their progression within these cases, and they were really just asking, who is this killer? The FBI during this time like, got involved and came out with this profile for this killer, they stated that he was a methodical, organized lust killer who had an above average intelligence, which we know is true, and exhibited indifference to the interests and welfare of society. And during this time, investigators also brought up the idea that there may have been more than one killer and that one of them had to have been in the military previously. And they specifically brought up the idea of a military background because some of the victims of Randy Kraft had been found with tissues in their nostrils. And this is a military tactic that is used to prevent the body from purging, which is basically just leakage after death. So you put it in their nose so it stops it from purging. And this is also the reason that they believe he would insert socks into... The rectums of his victims because when he was traveling with them he probably did not want that to leak out into his car so that's why they believe he did that and it is a military tactic which we know he was with the military so it's all sort of making sense with his profile that it is randy Kraft. but investigators still had no idea who they were actually looking for and then on march 29th 1975 Randy Kraft lures two young boys into his Ford Mustang. The two boys were Keith Crotwell and Kent May, and he had picked them up from a parking lot in Long Beach, California. Once they got into the car with him, he gave them both a beer and a Valium, which is a benzodiazepine, and it's used to slow down the central nervous system. After he gave the boys the drugs and the alcohol, he drove around randomly for a while, he kind of went around Seal Beach and Belmont Shore. And Kent May says that he started to really just feel not good. He couldn't really move around and he was just super immobilized. And this was most likely due to the mixture of beer and Valium. And he eventually ends up just passing out in Randy Kraft's car. The same night, Kraft drives back to the parking lot where he had picked up the boys and two friends of the boys actually see the driver of a very distinctive black and white mustang he pulls into the car lot he leans over across his front seat and opens the passenger side door and this is when he pushes kent may out of the vehicle and kent may was still unconscious at this time but nothing else had really occurred to him that was hurtful to him besides being pushed out of a car The driver then sped away, and as he left, they saw Keith Crotwell, who was still left in the car, slumped over onto the driver's shoulder. Um, So that's just crazy that, like, one of them got away and the other one was stuck with him for some reason. I don't necessarily know why he took both of them. I, I really don't know. But on May 8th, 1975, Keith Crotwell's skull is found close to the Long Beach Marina. The rest of his body was recovered about six months later. And after this, those two friends who witnessed the shoving of Kent May out of this very distinctive Mustang hear the news about Keith Crotwell and his body being discovered, and they begin searching like, through their neighborhood for this Mustang. And they actually find this vehicle less than a mile away from their house, so they write down the license plate number really quickly and give it to the police. And once the police put it into their system, they figure out that this car is registered to none other than Randy Steven Kraft, that piece of fucking shit. And on May 19th, 1975, Randy Kraft is called in for questioning by the police. Here, he initially tells them that he had never even met Crowell or May, just basically lying through his teeth. But he eventually kind of changes his story because they push him even further. They don't believe what he's saying. So he changes his story stating that he did, in fact, encounter both of the young boys in the parking lot in Long Beach, California. He states that he persuaded them to drink and take the Valium while he just drove around. He goes on to say that he did return May to the parking lot and then he continued driving with Crotwell. They drove to a side road close to the El Toro off-ramp, and he apparently got stuck on this embankment, and he says he gets out and he walks to a gas station so that he can go and call a tow truck. He leaves Crotwell behind, and he says when he gets back to his car from calling a tow truck, Crotwell is just missing and he is gone, which how convenient is that? He just walks away, supposedly, and comes back, and he just somehow disappeared. But I digress. It's just, it's a little suspicious. Kraft's roommate, though, actually confirmed that Kraft did, in fact, call him that evening, saying that his car was stuck on an embankment, which you could easily just call your roommate and make an alibi, you know what I'm saying? So, I say that there's no weight to that statement. And the investigators sort of felt the same way. So they were on edge about him still. And the following week after they had questioned him, they attempted to file some homicide charges against him. But these charges were denied by the Los Angeles District Attorney Office because the coroner's conclusion for Keith Crotwell's cause of death was actually accidental drowning. And after this, Randy Kraft somewhat went on a sort of hiatus, I assume, because he was Realizing that cops are, like, right on his ass, could catch him any time, so he kind of just chills for the whole summer of 1975, and he stops killing. He picks up his murders back again on December 31st, 1975, and this is actually his next known killing, and I am going to give a massive trigger warning for this one because it is just absolutely heinous, absolutely disturbing, and super upsetting. And this is actually known to be his worst quote-unquote murder. So I'm gonna tell you about it, but I just wanted to let you know it is upsetting. Randy Kraft abducts Mark Hall from the San Juan Capistrano area, and Mark was just 22 years old at this time. Kraft drove him to a remote canyon, tied him up to a tree, And during his autopsy, it was determined that he actually died from asphyxiation due to leaves and dirt being shoved down like way deep into his trachea. And his autopsy also showed that he had suffered from an extensive list of other things. And once again, trigger warning, Mark Hall had been sodomized and emasculated Then his severed genitals were forcibly inserted into his rectum. And he also suffered from burns that came from a cigarette lighter, a car cigarette lighter. And these burns were located on his chest, scrotum, nose, and cheeks. The same lighter was also used on both of his eyeballs. Oh my god. And he also suffered from numerous incisions on his legs that were made by a broken glass bottle. And the saddest part about this is that a forensic investigator basically, unfortunately determined that Hall had actually been alive for the majority of this attack, which is just so heartbreaking to hear. It just would have been terrifying and I just feel so bad, it's just so sad. In 1976, Randy Croft ended his relationship with Jeff Graves and quickly after the fact started an entirely new relationship with Jeff Sealing, who was just a 19-year-old apprentice baker. The two of them moved to Laguna Hills, California, and they kind of considered their relationship quote-unquote permanent, but they would also regularly pick up hitchhikers, and they state that if the hitchhiker was willing, they would take them to their apartment and have this hitchhiker participate in a threesome with the two of them. Sealing also states that he never really saw Randy Kraft display any violent tendencies, and he also said that Randy was never ever violent towards him at all. And during their relationship, Randy actually seemed to have slowed down on his killings, and he isn't really known to have killed again until December 10th, 1976. The body of Paul Joseph Fuchs still to this day has never been recovered, but he is known as the next victim in Randy's crimes, according to the scorecard that Randy had kept in his trunk. And this is where he would basically describe his victims in almost an inconspicuous way. He used minimal words maybe even some acronyms, he basically just kind of either used like their initials or the location or just all sorts of like little details about the murder, he would make this quote-unquote scorecard, which is just crazy, but he kept track of all the people that he killed. And this is why he was called the scorecard killer. Following this murder, he actually wasn't known to have killed again for another 16 months, Months so he was kind of just killing, taking breaks, and then he would go crazy, and he was just a very shitty person. On April 16th, 1978, Kraft is known to have abducted Scott Michael Hughes. He supplied Scott with Valium, and then Kraft proceeded to cut open, trigger warning Scott's scrotum, and removed one of his testicles. He then used some sort of item to strangle Scott, and he was actually found on a freeway on-ramp in Anaheim, California, and he was found fully clothed, which is slightly different from the rest of his victims. The only thing that was missing in his outfit was his shoelaces, which I kind of assume is what he used to strangle and inevitably kill Scott Michael Hughes, so it was kind of the murder weapon that he took with him. June eleventh, 1978, the body of Roland Gerald Young was found. His body was located near a San Diego freeway, and he was just a 23-year-old Marine at the time. He was treated terribly by Randy Kraft, as were the bulk of his, vi- all of his victims, not the bulk of his, vi- all of his victims. He was a piece of shit uh roland had been emasculated and then he was stabbed to death Uh, his body also seemed to have suffered abrasions that were very telling of the fact that roland was pushed from a moving vehicle that was traveling at a very high speed and then on june 19 1978 the body of richard allen keith was found disposed of beside a road in molten parkway He was just a 28-year-old Marine, and he had actually last been seen with his girlfriend in the city of Carson, California. Richard Keith's autopsy revealed that he had been bound before he was strangled to death, and we know this because he had welts on both of his wrists. There was also a sort of frothy liquid found in Richard's throat, and this indicated that he was drowning at the same time as being strangled when his murder had occurred. They believe that this is because of the mixture of drugs, which was for specifically, which is another benzodiazepine, which we previously discussed is almost like a tranquilizer. And this was mixed with alcohol. So these were both in his system at the time that he died. And they believe that's what that frothy liquid is in his throat and on Randy Kraft's scorecard he was thought to have been referred to as Marine Carson so like i said he'll use location or a little bit about the person so as we know Richard Keith was a marine and he was last known to be seen in Carson California so that's why his name and the scorecard was Marine Carson July 6, 1978, the body of Keith Arthur Kingbell had been found disposed off of the Interstate 5 Freeway. He was actually alive when he was found, and then he was taken to the Mission Community Hospital, where he later sadly did not make it through, and he had actually just succumbed to his injuries. He had ingested large doses of acetaminophen and alcohol before he was strangled with his very own shoelace. And it was also later uncovered in his autopsy that his left nipple had been seared by a car cigarette lighter. Again, with the damn cigarette lighter. Just such an asshole, this man. On September 29th, 1978, the body of Richard Anthony Crosby was found disposed of about 200 yards away from Highway 71 in San Bernardino, California. Richard Crosby was just a 20-year-old, and he really just needed a ride home from a theater in Torrance, California, and he had disappeared the previous day as he was trying to hitchhike home from this theater, which is just so sad. He just needed a freaking ride home. Richard's autopsy showed that he had been suffocated, and his left nipple had also been mutilated by the car cigarette lighter, which... I just don't even understand that damn cigarette lighter like why the fuck you gotta be such an asshole you're obviously already doing very shitty things why do you have to make it so much worse by literally just searing them with this hot ass lighter it's just I can't even fathom. On November 18th 1978 the body of Michael Joseph Anderbitten was found along an on-ramp to the I-605. Michael was just a 21-year-old truck driver. Michael suffered a brutal and terrible attack from Randy Kraft, like all of his other victims, but I did kind of want to give a trigger warning because this one is pretty brutal. Michael had been found castrated and he had also been violated by a foreign object. He had also suffered burns from that damn cigarette lighter. And similar to Mark Hall, Michael's cause of death was kind of listed as suffocation or asphyxiation. He committed a few more murders in the California area with the same M.O., but I'm not going to go into grave detail about what had happened to them, just because, like I said, same M.O., But I do want to shed light on who these victims are and when their crime or murder occurred. So on June 16th, 1979, 20-year-old Marine Donnie Harold Crissell was found. Then on August 29th, 1979, 21-year-old English tourist Keith Anthony Jackson was found and he is actually known to be England or 76 on Randy Kraft's scorecard. And then on September 14th, 1979, 19 year old Gregor Wallace Jolly is found. November 24th, 1979, 15 year old Jeffrey Sayre um, is found. And this victim is known to be Westminster Date on Kraft's scorecard. February 18th, 1980, 19-year-old Marine Mark Allen Marsh is found. And then Randy Kraft kind of hopped around just for a little bit because he was on quote-unquote business trips to Portland, Oregon. And then eventually he went to Michigan in 1982, like we previously talked about. So once again, he continued his killings here. I'm going to tell you who these victims are, when they happen, but I'm not going to go into extreme detail uh, because it was the same MO. So on July 17th, 1980, 17-year-old Michael Sean O'Fallon was found and he was known to have been Portland, Denver on Kraft's scorecard. His camera was also later found in Kraft's garage. So like I said, these murders occurred in Portland, Oregon. On July 18th, 1980, an unidentified male body was found, and he was believed to be in between the ages of 35 years old and 40 years old, and he was known to have been Portland Elk on Kraft's scorecard. Then on September 2nd, 1980, 19-year-old Robert Loggins uh, is found, and this is actually when Kraft is home. In California from Oregon. So this murder occurs in California. Like I said, he kind of jumps around a little bit. April 10th, 1981, 17-year-old Michael Cluck, he was known to have been Portland blood on Kraft's scorecard, is found. And based off of the name, you could assume he is back in Oregon for a business trip at this time. Uh, and it's also known that Kraft visited the hospital the same day that Michael's body was found, and this was for a bruised foot. August 20th, 1980, 17-year-old Christopher Allen Williams is found in California, so he's back home again. On July 29th, 1982, 14-year-old Raymond Davis is found, and he was known as Dog on Kraft's scorecard because he was last seen out looking for his missing dog and he's 14. Just heartbreaking. And also on that same day, July 29th, 1982, 40 feet away from Raymond Davis's body, 16-year-old Robert Alva is found. Now we're going to go back to Oregon cuz he's back in Oregon again on November 1st, 1982, 24-year-old Arnie Michael Lane is found. Five weeks later, 26-year-old Brian Witcher is found in Oregon, and then again on December 3rd, 1982, 29-year-old carpenter Anthony Jose Silveria is found in Oregon. He then, like I stated previously, went to the Grand Rapids in Michigan for another business trip, and of course, being the piece of fucking shit that he is, he... Killed two more people while he was in Michigan. So on December eighth, nineteen eighty two, both twenty four year old Dennis Alt and twenty year old Christopher Shuburn were found, and they were actually known as GR two on Kraft's scorecard. And like I said, these murders occurred in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then on December 8th, 19-year-old Lance Tags is found, and this is back in Oregon. So the same day, just absolutely insane. I can't believe that. So these six Oregon murders were quickly tied to Randy Kraft due to the M.O. and the nature of these crimes. Like I said, they were all male. They were all found near major roads or freeways, and there was also alcohol and pharmaceuticals found in their bloodstreams, which we know is completely in line with Randy Kraft's MO. And he actually killed four more people before he was caught, and I'm not going to go into detail again, but on January 27th, 1983, 21-year-old Eric Church is found, and then again on February 12th, 1983, 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson and 20-year-old Roger Duvall are both found. Now I'm going to discuss his final murder, and this is actually where he ends up getting arrested, thank God. So good because his reign of terror can finally come to an end at this point. And this occurs at 1 10 a.m. on May 14th, 1983. Two California Highway Patrol officers observe Toyota Silica, and the driver is kind of acting super crazy, driving all over the road and just not really looking too hot. And they kind of keep an eye on him. And after they notice that there is an illegal lane change, they finally have a reason to pull him over. So they pull the vehicle over for driving under the influence. Kraft stops the car abruptly and he gets out, and the officer noted that he actually noticed that Kraft's pant zipper was down. Kraft was prompted to perform a field sobriety test, to which he failed miserably, obviously, so he was arrested for driving under the influence. And during the time that the first highway patrol is dealing with Randy Kraft and getting him Arrested in the car, doing all of that fun stuff. The other partner goes to kind of take a look inside of Kraft's vehicle. And once he goes over to Kraft's car, he notices that there is a young man that is slumped over and unresponsive in the back seat of Kraft's car. And he actually had this jacket kind of just covering his torso and top of his waist area. So the highway patrol officer takes that off of him, and once he takes that off of him, he realizes that there are beer bottles all around his body, along with lorazepam, which is another benzodiazepine tranquilizer kind of medication, and the officer kind of like shakes him and tries to wake him up, but he realizes pretty soon that he is unresponsive and his skin is kind of cold to the touch, and he realizes that he is actually, in fact, dead. He notices that both of his hands were bound and he had a mark on his neck that indicated strangulation. His pants were undone, exposing him, Uh, and he was later identified as Terry Lee Gambrel. He was just 25 years old and he also was a Marine. Once they actually had Kraft held in custody, they did a super thorough search of his vehicle and this is when they found quite incriminating evidence against randy Kraft. they found a belt and this belt was actually the same width as the marks that were left on his last victim's neck when they found him and they found some alcohol tranquilizers various prescription drugs and stimulants There was actually a blood-stained carpet area that they took out of the vehicle and tested, and it did in fact have human blood on it. There was also an envelope underneath the carpet that contained more than 50 photographs of young men, and these young men were posed in almost pornographic poses and... In these photos, you can't necessarily tell if the victim is alive and just passed out from drugs and alcohol or if they are in fact dead. So that's just super upsetting. Inside of his trunk of his car, they find the ring binder containing a list of 61 code words and phrases, which we know is his scorecard for all of his killings. So on May 16th, 1983, Kraft was formally charged with the murder of Gambrell, which was his last known victim, and later he was formally charged with 15 counts of murders, two counts of sodomy, and one account of emasculation. The murders that he was charged for include the murders of Edward Moore, Kevin Bailey, Ronnie Wybee, Keith Crotwell, Mark Hall, Scott Hughes- Roland Young, Richard Keith, Keith Klingbell, Michael Interbiton, Donald Crissell, Robert Loggins, Eric Church, Roger Duvall, and Jeffrey Nelson and Terry Lee Gambrel. He was convicted on August 11th, 1989, and the jury basically came up with a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to death, and then he was formally sentenced on November 29th, 1990. The sentence was then upheld by the California Supreme Court on August 9th, 2000, and as of today, he is actually still incarcerated at the San Quentin State Prison, and he is still on death row. And also, he claims even to this day that he was never involved in any of these murders, never committed any of these crimes, even though he straight up had a scorecard, quote-unquote, in his possession with all of these, like, inconspicuous names that definitely line up with all of these murders, but I digress. He's just a terrible person, but that is Randy Steven Craft the scorecard killer and I am so sorry it was so brutal and upsetting I just I wanted to cover a serial killer and I necessarily like haven't really heard a whole lot about him as a person so I thought it was quite interesting to do research on how shitty he was but I hope it wasn't too bad definitely go listen to something happy after this just like in the last episode cheer yourself up. I think the only thing that I had to talk about was the fact that I am doing two episodes a week now. I'm gonna remind you here again, Wednesdays and Sundays now, not just Wednesdays, so stay tuned. There will be a new episode dropping midnight for Sunday. So excited to start this new little journey. I am pumped, but I am super grateful for you being here, so yeah. Thanks for joining me. Have a great rest of your week and I'll see you Sunday.